If you're able to stand, please do so. And we're going to read from verse 1 down through verse 6. We'll read responsively. I'll begin in verse 1. We'll begin together in verse 2. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Together, verse 2. Wash me thoroughly for mine iniquity, and cleanse me for my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. And done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Well, our theme this year, can everybody say the theme with me? It's right there on the screen. Ready? Here we go. Love works. Our theme this year is Love Works. We uh, have completed two series of sermons on the topic, and we're going to begin the third series. These work on top of each other or stack on top of each other. And so the title of the series we'll be in on Sunday mornings for the next several weeks is this, The Power of Love. The Power of Love. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll look at this topic today, Love Cleanses. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you that you are a God who passionately loves us. And Lord, as we begin to try to comprehend how powerful your perfect love is toward us today, Lord, may we be deeply challenged to go forth and live lifestyles that are worthy of it. And then, Lord, help us to take your love and channel it and share it with the world around us. Because, Lord, we live in a world that is so very broken right now. We live in a world where love is the answer. And so, Lord, help us to uh, glean and grow from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Wow. 2020 has been a rough year, has it not? Where is the reset button? Wouldn't it be great if we could get in a time machine and just go back and just do it all over again? Um, I know when I was a boy, I played my Nintendo, the kind where you had to blow the, the blow in the, um, uh, the game to clear the dust out, and you stuck it in there. I know, I'm old. Some of you are like, ah, pastor, they didn't have video games when we were kids. We went outside and played with sticks and pots and pans, amen? Uh, but uh, yeah, I'd play. And you know what? If uh, you were not playing well, you'd just turn the game off and turn it right back on, and, and Mario would start right back at the very beginning. And I would would love to be able to do that with 2020, uh, start over, but the Lord has a reason and a purpose for all of this. Way back in January of this year, we began by introducing our theme, Love Works. And critical to understanding the sermon today is understanding the material we have covered so far. Understanding what we have preached from the pulpit here so far. And so I'm not going to go back and re-preach all 15 sermons, but I will quickly give a recap at least of the first series that we covered way, way back in January and February. Our first series of the year was the properties of love. The properties of love. We talked about what makes up God's love. Why is this important? The reason why this is important is because we all have a diluted, uh, contaminated, uh, vile version of love that we're given, we inherit from the world around us. In fact, it is a love that is broken in the sense that it's usually more lust, self-centered, than love, others-centered. 
And this is just the reality of it. We put ourselves first and we put everyone else last. We look for self-preservation and we look for putting ourselves first. And we call our love, love. But the truth is, oftentimes it's lust. And we need to understand what love really is. And so we preached one, two, three, four, five sermons in the series. The first topic we looked at, we said that love is charitable. Love is charitable. And we talked about how charity puts others before ourselves. Charity defers. Charity prefers instead of me, it defers to you. It prefers you. Uh, Philippians 2, we learn the mind of Christ. In there it says that we're to prefer others ahead of ourselves. Verse 3 or 4, I believe it is. Not through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than himself. And so charity is always looking to take care of the needs of others. Lust says, I want. Lust says, you need. Lust says, give me. Rather, lust says, give me. Love says, I'll give you. Charity, the Sermon on Charity is where I quoted the poem, Others, Lord, yes, others. May this my motto be, that when I have lived for others, I too have lived for thee. Then we looked at love is compassionate. Love is compassionate. And we said compassion is taking your need or your hurt and putting it in my heart. Putting your hurt in my heart. And we talked about the importance of caring for the hurting world around us. Then we said love is committed. Love is committed. We talked about how commitment is lacking in the world today. Divorce is at an all-time high, and many couples just live together today because they're afraid of commitment, and they're afraid of tying the knot and being uh, uh, legally bonded to another person because they want a way out. We said that love is committed, and if we're going to truly know what love is, then we need to understand that God is committed to us, and He wants us to be committed in those relationships uh, to others. Aren't you glad this morning that God does not base His love for you on your behavior? Aren't you thankful for that? How many of you that was the case? God would go back and forth from loving you quite a bit. Amen? That's me. God would love me one, one day and He wouldn't love me the next. God would love me one moment and He wouldn't love me the next. You know what? On my best day, God loves me just the same as He does on my worst day because God is committed in his love toward us. Not only is love charitable and love compassionate and love committed, love is also chaste, chaste or pure. God's love for us is pure in every sense of the term. And God does not have a selfish motive in the matter. Boy, the Lord bent over backwards to love us. And when we blew it, when we fell into sin, when we defiled our souls in sin, God just said, look, I'm going to give the ultimate sacrifice. I'm going to lay down the life of my only begotten son in order to renew that relationship with you, in order to reestablish and fix that. And God's love for us is chaste. And God wants our love for him and others to be a love that is Pure, a love that puts others first, a love that is free of the contamination of sin. Love is chaste. And the last one we looked at, love is channeled. Now, I look at this list, charitable, compassionate, committed, and chaste, and I say, if that's how I have to love other people, uh, I'm not so very good at this. I don't know that I can love everybody that way. Boy, God put some people in my life, and I have a really difficult time loving them. Amen? 
I, sometimes I throw up my hands and say, I just can't. And God says, well, you shouldn't even be trying. You should just channel up to me and let me love them through you. Because I can't be charitable all the time, but God's charitable all the time. And compassionate and committed and chaste. If I'll channel up to the Lord and I'll let His love just flow through me onto others, I'm basking in the love of God and I'm literally taking it from God like an assembly line and I'm handing it to someone else and taking it from God and handing it to someone else. And I get in the habit of doing this and I don't have to find the love within me to give someone else because I'm getting it from God. I've channeled up to Him like a pipe to a water source and when someone turns on the sink, boy, my God's love just flows through me. I'm nothing more than the spigot that God's love flows through. So that is the property's love. Then we talked in great detail about the people I love. The people I love. And we looked at all sorts of people in the Bible that God has commanded us to love. Now today, we're going to begin our third series of sermons as we discuss this topic, the power of love. What happens when I get underneath the spigot of God's love and I let His love just wash me, pour all over me? What Power comes from that. What happens when I take God's love and I channel it on other people? Not the people who are easy to love, but the people that are hard to love. And I let God's love flow through me on other people, and those people let me love on them. By the way, that's a major qualifier. Some people don't want you to love them. You try to love them and they push away from it. Or they don't want the version of love that you are offering. They have their own idea of what they want. And if someone's not going to let you love them with God's love, you can't. But what happens when there are relationships in your life and you continue to show them the love of God and they continue to stick with you with that? Boy, the power of love. Over the next six or seven weeks, we're going to look at several different things that happen when we love others God's way. God's way. The first one of those that we're going to look at is this idea of the cleansing power of love. The fact that love cleanses. Boy, I hope what I can do this week, or that rather in this series, I hope what I can do is convince you to get under the spout where God's love flows out. You just get under that spout and you make it a, pl- a, a point to live right there under the spout where God's love flows out. The truth is, all of us blow it from time to time, don't we? Uh, either we have days or weeks or even seasons. Hey, everybody, the kids are going outside. Everybody turn and look. All right, everybody look back up here. Amen. I can see everybody going. You guys are so easily distracted. There's a squirrel out that window. All right. We all blow it from time to time, do we not? Whether it's a day, a week, or maybe it's even years where we get away from the Lord. A point I want to make very early in the message today is that as passionate as God is about loving you, it's a passion that is so strong it can't be explained in words. It can't even be illustrated. I can't find a way to show you how passionate God is in His love to you. That's how passionate God is about you. Equally, God is as equally passionate against your sin. As much as God loves you, He hates your sin. He hates my sin. 
So what happens when we cover ourselves in the filth of sin? Boy, we put a we put a wall up between us and the Lord. In essence, we're refusing to be under the spout where God's love flows out. Because by the very fact that we have defiled ourselves, we've disqualified ourselves from existing under the power of that love. Now, God still loves you, but that love has no change in your life. We all blow it from time to time. We all get away from the Lord. Our walk with God dries up, if we ever even had one. And then our spiritual life spirals downward out of control. We stop and look at ourselves and we find that we are covered in sin and its filth. We feel guilty all the time. And we know deep down inside that we are wayward. So how do we get right? How does God bring us back in line? He does so with His love. Oh yes, sometimes His love is tough. Sometimes His love hurts. Sometimes He chastens us or corrects us. But He always does it with a spirit of love. And He does it with the motive of making us chaste or pure. But after each time we fall, it is God's love and grace that is there to help pick us up and dust us off. When I was a a college student studying for ministry, I, I got a job an hour from the dorms and I worked a truck dock job, driving a forklift in and out of tractor trailers all day, taking freight from one truck and putting it in another truck and uh, learning all the dynamics of that. I worked there for three and a half years and uh, I worked there through the bitter winter uh, winters of Chicago. The back end of the truck dock was open so the wind would uh, whip through and we get snow on the dock. It's amazing we didn't, you know, ice sled off the dock and and kill ourselves. It was a wild job, and um, you know I uh, I worked. It, it was it was wild. But one one of the things from that job each day we'd get done, and our hands would be covered in dirt and grime. And I mean, you couldn't go to the bathroom and just put hand soap and take it off. You, you needed the gojo. How many know what gojo is? Right. You, some of you have worked jobs of the sort. Uh, some of you men maybe have changed your oil or or put your hands under the hood and pretended that you knew what you were doing, like me, amen? Uh, but you get grease all over your hands, and that soap is just a little bit more powerful than regular hand soap. Boy, it's got a grit to it, and you get it in under your fingernails, and you, um, uh, you get it down in the dry uh, cracks of your hand, and you put that under the warm water or the hot water, and it takes the dirt and grime away. What we need is we need a good spiritual bath. And that's what God's love is intended to do. There are some people who have a view of God that God is some big, mean, ugly odor in heaven and He's got a temper and He's angry and He's just waiting for us to step out of line and do something we shouldn't do or say something we shouldn't say or behave in a way we shouldn't behave. And then He picks up the stick and He whacks us across the back of the head. That's not how God operates. Now, does God punish us? Yes. Does it hurt? Oh, I've been punished by God. And oh boy, it hurts. Amen? Some of you have experienced the chastening hand of God. It doesn't feel real good. But He never does it out of anger. And He's patient with it. Boy, His love, if we allow it, will clean us. How many of you can see that today, our world needs a good spiritual bath? 
Boy, we've got all kinds of hostility outside the walls of this church. We've got people looting and rioting and burning buildings down. We have people who are very hateful, nasty and angry. Our politicians are all a bunch of phonies on both sides of the aisles. Maybe not all of them, but a lion's share of them. What do we need? What's the answer? Do we believe that love works or, or, or do we not believe that? Does God, is God's love the answer to societal problems today or isn't it? If it really is, then we have to start living it. We have to say, Lord, I'm not going to go out there and throw a, a, a verbal bricks at people or even physical bricks at people. I'm going to love the world around me. And boy, when we get underneath the spout of God's love, one of the powerful things that happens is it cleans us up, then it cleans up others around us. Psalm 51, we find King David covered in the grime of his own wickedness. David allows God's love to be the cleansing agent to his soul. Let's jump into the outline this morning. If you have an out, a bulletin on the back of there is a fill-in-the-blank outline. Please, please, please take notes. Uh, um, some of you are, are, are fighting me on that. You refuse to do it. And I look forward to the day where you just pick up a pen and fill in the notes. Amen? But let's look at four truths from this uh, psalm as we begin a new series entitled The Power of Love. And we consider this amazing truth that love cleanses. Number one, notice our depravity. Our depravity. Look with me at Psalm chapter 51 and verse number 5. The Bible says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David says, While I was gestating in my mother's womb, I was gestating in sin. I was being shapen as a sinner. I came out of the womb a natural born sinner. I came out of the womb depraved. As David prays his prayer, you know where he was? He was laying prostrate on his face with a carpet most likely below him soaked with his own tears. He hadn't eaten in days. He had just laid there and sobbed and not even been able to pray for the first several hours he was down there. Broken by his own sin. Well, what sin did David commit that caused him to be so upset? Well, most of you in here know the story, and so I won't go into great detail. Some of you may not know the story in here, and others online may not know the story. So for the sake of those who maybe aren't as familiar, I'm going to share what David did. David was a man after God's own heart, the Bible tells us. He had a great walk with God. He loved God deeply. He was a powerful king, and he and God had a tight relationship. Well, just like you and I can get away from the Lord, David his heart grew cold toward God. And it was the season of time where the soldiers went out to battle. David should have gone with them as their leader, but instead he stayed back. And one night he wandered onto the rooftop of his palace. David had a mighty man of valor, one of the elite of his special forces. In today's terms, he would have been a Navy SEAL or an Army Ranger. He was an elite warrior. The Bible calls him that in another book. His name is Uriah. And Uriah had a wife 
named Bathsheba. Bathsheba was on her rooftop taking a bath. And so there uh, King David is in his house. He looks out across the way and he sees Bathsheba in the nude. And he looks at her and he desires her sexually. He wants her and so he sends for her and brings her into his uh, palace, into the chambers of his palace. And he has an affair with Bathsheba while Uriah is out fighting a battle on his behalf. That is despicable. And if it's not bad enough, a month or two later, Bathsheba sends a message to David, and the message reads, I am pregnant. You're the only man I've been with. This is your child. David, you need to do something about this. And so David hops into action. He calls Uriah off the battlefield. He brings Uriah in. He says, Uriah, you're such a great guy. He flatters him. He says, go on home and enjoy your life. Man, Uriah is such a valiant man. He's like, I could never go home and enjoy my wife while my brothers are dying on the battlefield. And so he sleeps on his front porch and won't go in his own house. So David brings him back in and David gets him drunk. And David says, well, maybe now he'll go be with his wife. And Uriah, even in his drunkenness, says, I will not do it. And so David feels as though he has no choice. So David writes a note commanding having the commanding general put uh, Uriah on the front lines in the heat of the battle. And when a signal is given that everyone but Uriah knows, they will all pull back and abandon Uriah to be killed by the enemy. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah is killed by David's command. So now David's committed adultery, and David's committed murder. And as soon as Uriah, word gets back to David that Uriah is dead, he brings Bathsheba in his house, and he marries her to cover up the pregnancy. Boy, that baby is born, and David feels like he's gotten away with it. Until God sends a prophet named Nathan to go pay a visit to David. Nathan walks in the palace, and he takes his bony, crooked finger. That's in the Hebrew. You have to read between the lines. Bony, crooked finger, and he puts it in David's face, and he says, David, you are guilty of sin. David, you are guilty of wickedness. David, you have done wrong. Thou art the man. David falls on his face before God, realizing how far, how cold his heart's gotten, how grimy he is. And he acknowledges his depravity. Christian, have you acknowledged your depravity? Have you been honest with God about how sinful you really are? You see, we we believe, we believe, well, I'm not that bad. The truth is, if we had any idea how often we sin, all of us would just be Blown away by it and ashamed. Our depravity, number two, notice God's desire. God's desire. You know, God loves you, but He hates your sin. God loves me, but He hates my sin. And God wants everything, uh, wants with everything within Him to separate the sin from the sinner. He wants those two apart. Notice letter A, God's desire for honesty. Honesty. Look with me at verse number 6 of Psalm Chapter 51, we find a very important word here. Behold, David says in this prayer, Thou, God, desirest truth. What's that word? Truth. Say it with me. Truth. God wants the truth. God wants the truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, Thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Did you know that human nature is biased? Very biased. I'm going to show you right now just how biased you are. You ready? For this to work, you have to be honest. Okay? You all ready? Do I have, you, do I have your curiosity peaked? 
Like, all right, Pastor, I'm waking up from my nap, and I'm, uh, I'm coming back from La La Land, and I'm going to participate. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. I want you to be honest with yourself, all right? I may even ask you to raise your hand, and so if so, raise your hand if, if, it, if it applies. All right. If I gave you a piece of paper and I had you write down all of the problems in your life or write down all of the good in your life, so you're going to make a list of problems or you're going to make a list of positives, problems or good, which list would be easier for you to make? How many say the problems list would be a little bit easier to make? Be honest. Be honest. My hand's up. My hand's up, all right? Um, if not, then you are a mature person. Good job. But you know what? It's easy for us to complain. Let me give, it to you, give this to you another way. Do you think that you say positive things about your life or complain about your life more? I bet we all complain a little bit more than we, you know, are positive. Here's another question. If I had you list all of the problems with our church... And then list all of the good things that go on at our church. Which list would be easier for you to compile? Now, if you're new here, it's the good, right? Because you haven't gotten in tight and known. But some of you have been here for years. And others of you work here, right? And uh, you can make a whole laundry list of things that are wrong with White Oak Baptist Church. And we have them. I'm not denying it. And uh, we, we need to work on the areas where we fall short. Which list is easier to make? The list of problems. You know, bad news travels around the world twice before good news travels around the block once. It's our nature. Let me give you another example. Think about the person you're closest to within your family, whether that's a parent, a child, uh, a spouse, uh, a brother or sister. If I had you make a list of the flaws of your nearest family member and then make a list of the positive character traits, which list would be easier to accomplish? You all get my point here? We're slanted toward negative. All right. One more question. I'm going to show you how biased you are. Right? This is the question. Here it is. If I had you make a list of all of the good things that you do and a list of all of the bad things that you do, which list would be easier to make? You see how we're so good at seeing everybody else's negative? And so good at seeing our own positive? You see how biased we are? If I stop ten people on the street and I ask them, um, are you going to heaven when you die? And they were to say yes, and I were to say why. Do you know what eight out of ten of them would say? Because I'm a good person. Oh, really? You really want to stick with that? Okay, let's take every thought you've thunk over the last 24 hours and let's put it on that screen. For everybody to see. I'm not signing up. Anybody here want to volunteer for that? You really think you're a good person? Boy, if we were to take every sin you've ever committed and record it in a book, how thick would that book be? Or rather, how many libraries would those books fill? God wants us to be honest with Him. We have to quit painting ourselves in a light that's just not fair. We are depraved. And God wants us to be honest. Let her be. Notice the word humility. God desires humility. We look with me at verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 51. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou desirest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God, look here, are a broken spirit. 
A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. Here you have King David, leader of the free world of his day, leader of one of the greatest nations of his day, and he lays on his face and he says, Lord, I have broken your heart. Lord, I have defiled myself. Lord, I am sinful. Lord, I am honest about my sin. And Lord, I humble myself before Thee. I am a king, David says. And people come and bow before me on a regular basis. They do obeisance to me. I go out of my chariot. And people stop what they're doing to honor me. He said, but Lord, I don't need people to bow to me. I need to bow to You. Because I have done wrong. You know, uh, part of the reason why we never get that spiritual bath quite the way we ought to, part of the reason why the power of God's love is not able to cleanse us is because we live in denial of just how broken and sinful we are. We're not honest with ourselves. And even if we were to be honest with ourselves, we're not humble enough to lower ourselves on our knees and tell God how wrong we are. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this. It says, if we confess our sin. I've used this verse three weeks in a row now. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But can I ask you a question? Are we really confessing our sin? We get down on our knees and we say, Lord, I did this, 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 and this today. Will you please forgive me? And then we get up and go do the same thing all over again. You may have admitted to God that you did wrong, but did you confess it? Admission and confession are two totally different things. uh, Confessing our sin is an agreement with God over what I've done being wrong. Right? There's an intellectual agreement. God is looking for an emotional agreement. Boy, that humility. God's desire. God's desire. Number three. Notice our deliverance. You know, I stand up here today and I'm preaching a tough sermon. And I'm about to get even tougher on what I'm saying. I preach this because I love you. A lot of pastors today are standing behind pulpits and they're preaching a bunch of phoniness. They're not willing to preach a hard truth. They don't preach against sin. And the churches that are the fullest today around America, the lion's share of them the pastor will stand up and just preach some encouraging word and send everyone out the door feeling good about themselves. And there are times I'm going to preach sermons like that here because it's biblical. The Word of God is a book of comfort. The Word of God is also a book that condemns sin. On on an occasional basis, my children cross lines and do wrong. And I punish them. I don't punish them because I hate them. I punish them because I love them. I punish them because I want them to turn out right. I stand up here today and preach what I'm about to preach. Because I love you. God wants you to be delivered from a life of sin. The world wants to paint sin as cool. The world wants to paint sin as fun. And you know what? Sin is fun for a season. Hebrews chapter 11, I think it's verse 30. The Bible says that Moses refused uh, to be called the son of Pharaoh. He denied the pleasures of sin for a season. 
Oh, sin is fun. But, you know, it leaves a bad aftertaste and the consequences are awful. The world wants to tell you that being defiled is really clean. Isn't that backwards? And I'm here today to tell you that God's love can deliver you. Letter A, our remorse. Our remorse. How do we get delivered from sin? We need to show true remorse. Look at verse 17 of Psalm 51. David here is laying on his face. He's weeping before God. It says here, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Can I speculate just for a minute? I'm going to speculate just for a moment. I don't know if this happened, but I'm going to speculate that it probably did. The Old Testament sacrifices were meant to help clear your record when you did wrong. We don't use that system anymore because Jesus was the last sacrifice when he died on the cross. Is it possible? I think it's possible. I would even say it's probable that after David buried Bathsheba, or rather married Bathsheba and buried Uriah, after David had married Bathsheba, that he went into the temple and he performed a sacrifice and went through the process of telling God he was sorry for his sin. And thought, okay, I did that. And so I'm in the clear. I'm all good. The Bible doesn't tell us this happened. It's speculation on my part. But can I tell you that this is what Christians do? They give lip service to saying they're sorry for their sin. They act as though they're upset about what they did wrong. They'll get on their knees and they'll confess and tell God they're sorry. Uh, they'll, they'll go through the process, the rigors of, of getting their record cleared with God. But we have lost the art. We have lost the doctrine of truly being remorseful for our sin. When was the last time you laid on your face before God and you wept and you cried and you sobbed because your sin breaks God's heart? I'm not saying that you need to fake cry. I'm not saying you need to conjure up some tears. But I am saying that if you can't weep and you can't cry over your sin, then it's time for you to draw closer to a holy God so that the flashlight of His godliness will expose how horrible we are as sinners. Boy, we're, we've lost the art of, of, of grieving. We've lost the doctrine of grieving. In 2020, in churches across America, boy, we're just patted on the back and told, you can make it one more week. It'll be alright. God loves you. You head on down the road and live your life. And what we need today is for Christians to fall on their face and confess their sin and turn from their wicked ways. We need Christians who will look in the mirror and see themselves the way God sees them. Isaiah was caught up into heaven believing he was a good man. In a vision, he was caught up into heaven. He saw God in His holiness. And the first thing he did was fall flat on his face and said, My lips are wicked. Boy, he couldn't move. He was paralyzed when he realized how wicked he was. David here sees the gravity of how much God's heart is broken and how much God hates his sin. And he throws himself prostrate on his face. And he weeps. Christian, we're not really going to see revival in America until the Christians of this country get right with God. We're going through the motions day after day, week after week. We read our Bible and pray. We read our Bible and pray. And I'm not putting that down. You ought to read your Bible and pray. But are you doing it as an oblation? Are you doing it as a sacrifice? Are you doing it as a ritual? Or are you doing it because you love God with all your heart? Boy, Christians, we need to show that we're truly remorseful over our sin. 
I'm not standing up here today telling you that every day I lay on my face and cry like a baby over my sin. I ought to do it a lot more than I do. But bless God, we all ought to do it a lot more than we do. Well, we just accept sin as though it's okay. And God says, it's time to quit making the excuses. We are callous toward our sin. We excuse it. We shrug our shoulders at it. We've allowed it to set up a permanent resonance in our lives. And we accept it as normal. We say things like, well, everybody sins. And nobody's perfect. And, oh, it's not that bad. And, oh, I only do wrong sometimes. And I'm better than most people I know. And surely God wants me to have some fun every now and then. And God says, no, I want you to walk away from sin. I want you to bask in the shower of my love. I want you to be cleansed by my love. I want you do walk holy before me. Letter B, we're looking at our deliverance. Notice the word repentance. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 51 and see how David is pivoting away from his sinful behavior and pivoting toward righteousness. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. David, you didn't just sin against God and God only. You also sinned against Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah. But please understand what David is trying to say here. He's saying, my sin against God is so great that my sin against others pale in comparison to how great my sin is against God. He said, God, my sin is in my eyes. You know... um, An immature Christian needs a preacher to stand up and call out sin and step on toes. An immature immature Christian needs a Nathan of sorts to stick their long finger in their face and say, you're filthy and you need a spiritual bath. A mature Christian is just able to see it and identify it on their own. David here says, my sin is ever before me. I have never seen myself more vile than I see myself right now. David said, I'm going to repent. What does it mean to repent? If you're taking notes, will you write this definition down? It won't be on the screen, and so you just have to have a a somewhat decent short-term memory. Repentance, a change of one's mind that leads to a change of one's actions. A change of one's mind that leads to a change of one's actions. Repentance begins with a mentality shift. It begins with a mentality shift. If we're confessing our sin at 8 a.m. in the morning or 6 a.m. in the morning, whenever you get up, and you're turning around and committing the same sin by noon, and you're doing that day after day after day, have you really changed your mentality? I'd say you haven't. Boy, we're getting honest with ourselves, and we're changing our mind about our behavior, and it might take us a little while to get away from that behavior, but boy, we're determined to get there, and that changing of our mind leads to a changing of our actions. David said, Lord, I, I blew it. I committed adultery. I, I had an affair. I committed adultery. I, 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 I have innocent blood on my hands. Uriah is dead because of me and my orders. He said, I'm, 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 I'm guilty of sin. And he said, Lord, I'm turning from this wretchedness, this wickedness, and I'm going to, uh, I, I, I'm going to live right in your sight. Lord, I want to live under your love. Look back at verse number 1 with me of Psalm 51. Notice here what the showerhead of God's love looks like. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy... What's that next word? Is there a better word in the Bible? Loving kindness. That's like taking two awesome words and and, and joining them together. 
Not only is he loving us, he's doing it kindly. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy, next two words, tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Listen, God has given us great reason to pivot away from sin and pivot under the showerhead of his love. Let her see. Notice our deliverance. Notice restoration. Restoration. Psalm chapter 51. And um, uh, we're going to look at verse 11 and 12 instead of 1 and 2. That's my uh, typo there. But let me give you these two underneath here. Notice joy restored and relationship renewed. Joy restored and relationship renewed. Um, Have you found this, Christian, to be the case? That when you first got saved, your heart was filled with joy? And the further you grew from God, that joy seemed to, you know, start to dip and fall. And you get to the place where you're just downright a miserable person. You know why? Because the world might put its check mark of approval on your lifestyle, but God removes His. And when God removes His, His joy disappears with it. Look at verse number 11 of Psalm 51. Or rather, verse 12. Look at verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with thy free spirit. David says, my sin has cost me to lose my joy. I just don't have the joy I used to have. David said, I'm remorseful. I'm repentant. Lord, please restore my joy. Look at verse number 12, or rather verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence. And take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Time today does not allow us to get into the nuances of what verse 11 all means. But what I can tell you verse 11 means is that God, David, missed his relationship with God. You know, D.L. Moody was famous for this quote. uh, This book, speaking of the Bible, will keep you from sin. Or sin will keep you from this book. Have you found that the further you grow away from God and the more sin becomes prevalent in your life, the less it is you want to read your Bible? And the less it is that you even really want to go to church? Boy, David said, restore my relationship with you, God. And by default, restore my joy. Restore my joy. Christian, are you ready to be clean? Are you ready to let God's love wash away the grime of your life? I'm going to give you point four. I'm not going to make any comments on it because I feel led to have an invitation. Number four is our determination. Our determination is that we're to turn around and teach others. Verse 13. Two men went for a walk. One man made soap, the soap factory. The other man was a preacher. The soap CEO says to the preacher, Your gospel doesn't work. Look at all of the sin that's in the world. Look at all of the brokenness of society. Your gospel does not work. The preacher didn't say anything. They kept walking. A little bit later, they came up to a little boy sitting in a mud puddle, making mud cakes. Boys covered in dirt from head to toe. The preacher didn't miss a beat. He looked at the the, the CEO of the soap company. He said, your soap does not work. Look at all the dirt and grime and dirty people that are still in the world. The soap CEO looked back to the preacher and he said, it only works when it's applied. 
And the preacher said my point exactly. If you're here today and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, don't delay any longer. Let the soap of the gospel wash away the sin of your soul. Don't wait another moment. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Lord, we need Psalm 51 Christians who will see the severity of their sin, the depravity of their life. Lord, we let sin take up residence in our life. And Lord, we shrug our shoulders at it and are callous toward it. Shame on us. Lord, you want to send revival to this country. But how can you if your Christians are so carnal? And Lord, there may be someone listening in either online or here in this room who has not yet accepted the greatest gift ever offered, the gift of salvation purchased by the life of Jesus Christ on the cross. Lord, would you help soften their heart? Would you help them to open their heart and put their faith in you and be saved? May they know what it means to have the cleansing agent of your love wash away the eternal debt of their sin. Lord, for those of us here that are saved, we think of Peter who had his feet washed by you in the upper room. Lord, we need our feet washed proverbially every now and then. We need that cleansing. Lord, help us to do serious business with you this morning. 